Alright, we're in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. It's Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read it to you, and we'll begin to start breaking it down. It says, Every high priest is selected from among men, and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now we're not going to be even able to get into the study of Melchizedek. We'll have to pick that up when we come back in January. But for tonight, what I want to do is just kind of pick up where we left off last week. You remember, this is the, in this section, the Hebrew writer goes on to explain how Jesus is a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. We saw that at the end of chapter 4. And we're going to go into it in more detail tonight as he explains that some more in chapter 5. He does this by using the Jewish high priest's role as an example. So there's three things here that he talks about in the role of the Jewish high priest. And we're going to take a look at those by going back and looking at some passages in the Old Testament. And take a look at Aaron, uh, who was the first high priest uh, for the nation of Israel. So um, the first thing I want you to see that we're going to look at tonight is this. Every high priest is selected. Alright? So... In Exodus 28, put a bookmark here, go to Exodus chapter 28, we'll look at verses 1 through 5, you're going to see how God selected who the high priest would be. Exodus chapter 28, verses 1 through 5. God says, Have Aaron your brother brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Tell all the skilled men to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so that he may serve me as priest. These are the garments they are to make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons, so they may serve me as priests. Have them use gold and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen. Now there's more detail that God goes into as he's speaking to Moses here. But look closely how God chose Aaron to be priest and also to all the, uh, the priests that come from his lineage, the Levites. There's another place. and Go to the book of Numbers. Just keep turning to the right a little bit. To Numbers chapter 17, verses 1 through 11. You'll see it again. Now, as you're turning, let me kind of set the stage which has been going on. God has chosen Aaron. Of course, Moses is, is uh, leading the people as well. But he's chosen Aaron to be the priest and his sons to speak and serve uh, between them and God. And the, the nation of Israel at this time is really grumbling about Moses being in charge. And there's, there's a lot of strong personalities in that group. And, and uh, they really have been uh, fussing. And so they, they at this point say, um, we don't think that Aaron should be the one. We think we're just as, as good in God's eyes. And so here in chapter 17, you'll see what happens. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and get twelve staffs from them, one from the leader of each of, the, of their ancestral tribes, 
Write the name of each man on his staff. On the staff of Levi, write Aaron's name, for there must be one staff for the head of each ancestral tribe. Place them in the tent of meeting in front of the testimony where I meet with you. The staff belonging to the man I choose will sprout, and I will rid myself of this constant grumbling against you by the Israelites. So Moses spoke to the Israelites, and their leaders gave him twelve staffs, one for the leader of each of their ancestral tribes, and Aaron's staff was among them. Moses uh, placed the staffs before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. The next day, Moses entered the tent of the testimony and saw that Aaron's staff, which represented the house of Levi, had not only sprouted, but had budded, blossomed, and produced almonds. (laughs) You think God was really making it clear? Alright, this all happened overnight. I was just sitting there thinking, Almond Joy has nuts, Mounds don't. That's just, that's just I, I was just, I don't know why, that just jumped in my head. But all right. Verse 9 Then Moses brought out all the staffs from the Lord's presence to all the Israelites. They looked at them, and each man took his staff. The Lord said to Moses, Put back Aaron's staff in front of the testimony to be kept as a sign to the rebellious. This will put an end to their grumbling against me so that they will not die. Moses did just as the Lord had commanded him. Aaron had been the one God selected. And God made it very, very clear. Uh, Go to Hebrews chapter 5. And you'll see this in the section we just talked about in verses 4 through 6. In Hebrews chapter 5 verses 4 through 6, again, the Hebrew writer says, No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. And he also then in another place says, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, in these situations here, the first one where he says, You are my son, today I have become your father. If you want to make a note, that's in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And in the other place where he says, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, that's in Psalm 110, verse 4. That's Psalm 2-7 and Psalm 110, verse 4. And so the first thing we see is the Hebrew writer saying that every high priest had to be selected, and so was Jesus. He was chosen by the Father to take this role. Now the second thing we see from where we've been looking here in Hebrews 5 is that the high priests are also not only selected, they're appointed by God to represent man in matters related to God. Their role is to represent man in matters related to God. And so as they talk to God or or deal with God on behalf of man, that is their role. So I want to take a look at that by just turning back to chapter 2 and verses 14 and verse 17. We've already seen this, so I'm not going to go into much detail. But in chapter 2, verse 14, the Hebrew writer said, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. And then in verse 17, it says, For this reason he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Alright, so again... The high priest had to be selected. Jesus was selected. The high priest's role was to represent man in matters related to God. Jesus did the exact same thing. He represented man in matters related to God. Why was he able to do that? Because he was man and he's also God. I mean, in chapter 2 of uh, Corinthians... uh, Paul, Paul says, uh, no one knows the thought of, of a man except his own spirit within him. In other words, you could look at me right now, but you really couldn't know what I was thinking. And I don't know what you're thinking. Only the spirit within you knows what you're really thinking. 
In the same way, Paul goes on to say in that same chapter that no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. The neat thing was, Jesus, who was man, also was God, and He was able to relate between the two because He understood both and knew what they were thinking and knew how the Father felt, knew how the people felt. He was the perfect high priest. Alright, so the third thing I want you to see, first thing is they're selected, second is they're appointed to represent man in matters related to God. Third thing is this, they're to also offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Where we just left off in verse 17, let me read it again in chapter 2. For this reason, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Now we're going to go into that in a little bit more detail in just a second about how Jesus did that. But I want you to go back to Leviticus chapter 9. Uh, We're just going to look at one verse. Leviticus chapter 9, verse 7, to show how that was the high priest's role. And again, Leviticus chapter 9, verse 7 talks about that. Verse 7, Moses says to Aaron, Come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and the people. Sacrifice the offering that is for the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. You see, his role was to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Aaron's role was to do that, but what did it say? Before he could make sacrifices for other people's sins, what did he have to do? He had to make sacrifices for his own sins. Because he was not holy in and of himself to be able to go and represent man. He had to have sacrifices for his own sins. God says, okay, I accept that. Then he was able to offer sacrifices on behalf of man uh, of the rest of the nation. Jesus does the same thing for us. The good news is Jesus never has to sacrifice for his own sins. Go to chapter 7 of Hebrews and you'll see how this is actually described wonderfully, wonderfully well. Chapter 7, verses 23 through 28. We'll get into this in more detail when we get to our study of Melchizedek. And by the way, for those of you who don't know who Melchizedek is, it's going to be one of the most interesting studies in all the Bible to figure out who was this guy? Where did he come from? Was he man? Was he God? Did he have a beginning? Did he have an end? Who is this guy? And we'll get into that when we get back in January. That's just to make you come back. All right? All right. But look at Hebrews 7 and verses 23 through 28. The Hebrew writer is talking about Melchizedek and the, the line of the, or the Aaronic priests or Levites. And verse 23 says, Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Now, such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Now, I want to go into this, but that's not where we're going tonight. Just understand the Hebrew writer is saying, in the same way in which the high priests had three main roles, they were selected, they were appointed to represent man, and matters related to God, and they were to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Jesus has met all these requirements, but not only that, He's met them perfectly, and we don't need any more. Now, 
For a second though, let's just kind of go down a road. Are there not times in our life that we still think we have to make sacrifices because of our sins? Don't we fall sometimes into that pattern of thinking that we need to make restitution, penance, need to feel sorry for what we've done, we need to in a sense pay for what we've done? Folks, we'll go into it in a lot more detail later. Please don't fall prey to that lie. Jesus has already fully paid the price for your sin. Now, am I saying there'll be no consequences? No, I'm not saying that. Your loving Father is going to take what you do and He's going to shape you and mold you. And sometimes He may do something that makes you feel not pleasant or uncomfortable, but it's for your best. It's not punishment. It's not, it's not Him making you pay for what you've done. How many times have we thought when our child gets sick, well, that's because I did so-and-so, or I lost my job, that's because so-and-so, or my marriage fell apart, that's because God is getting me. You ever heard that? The sad thing is too many Christians fall into that mindset as well, and that is a mindset of thinking that God is still going to have to make you make a payment for what you've done, or pay a sacrifice for your sin. Jesus, the Scripture says, made the full and final sacrifice for sin. Now, God is not dealing with you according to your sins. But He also wants you to be like Him. And when you get out of that path, if you will, of looking like Him, and not allowing Him to live His life through you, He'll put you back on the path. And sometimes that doesn't feel good. But it is never, ever, ever making you pay for what you've done. And if you can get that to sink in, when He's working on your life, it doesn't hurt so bad, and you actually see the good in it. But the question is, do you really believe that that's your position? Do you really understand that it's already been paid for? Do you really understand that God loves you? Go ahead. It's only been in the last couple of years that myself, look at the Apostle Paul, prior to his conversion, killed Christians. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever show that Paul needed to go back and make any kind of restitution to the families that were damaged in that, that that's right. Peter, feed my sheep. Yep, feed my sheep. Uh, folks, understand your position in Christ. He's not going to make you pay for what you've done. Half the time, I know since I really understood grace, just my my grief for the fact that I have sinned is enough. <laughs> you know. But God isn't trying to make me feel bad. You know, a lot of times as, as parents, we, we try to, when we're, we're, we're disciplining our children, sometimes we want to punish them. Sometimes we want to make them feel bad. We, we feel like if they feel bad, they won't do it again. Does that work? No. No, it doesn't. So just for now, lock that into your head. There are no more sacrifices for sins necessary. No more payment for sin needs to be made. It's been already fully made. Now... There's something, though, that the Hebrew writer back here in chapter 5 is bringing out about the human high priest that will be of help to us. And so that's what I want to focus on in the time that we have left tonight here. Um, I I want to just focus on something he brings out. And look at what he says in chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. He says, He, this is the human high priest, is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is subject to weaknesses. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. Now, of course, I'm sure there were human high priests that felt that they were sinless or more righteous than the people around them, and they probably didn't really make a really good high priest. You probably wouldn't want to go to that kind of a high priest when you were going to make restitution for your sins under that system. But 
the Hebrew writer says that actually because if a high priest understood their weakness and the fact that they were susceptible to sin just like the people they were sacrificing for, they were able to deal gently with those who actually sinned. And if you, again, we're looking at an old system here, but if you were going to make restitution for your sins and you knew that the high priest was going to deal gently with you, wouldn't you feel a lot more willing to go to that high priest? If you thought they were going to deal harshly with you, you might not be as bold. You might tiptoe. You might just say, that ain't worth it. I'm, he's just going to beat me up. But if you believed that he was going to deal gently with you because he understood you, you would be willing to go. And there's something here that I want us to kind of go down this road of tonight that the Hebrew writer is saying compares with Jesus. Now, of course, Jesus has never sinned. Yet, he's pulling this out for a reason. The Hebrew writer is saying that the high priest was able to deal gently. He's pulling that out for a reason. And we're going to see in a little bit that Jesus actually is able to deal gently with us. And uh, I'm going to throw you a couple curveballs before the night's over. But before that, let's take a look and see if that pattern continues with Aaron. Was Aaron able to deal gently with those who fall? Did, did he? Was he weak? Well, go to chapter 32 of Exodus. Some of you may have seen this and you're going to remember. Others of you are going to see it for the first time and you're going to go, Really? Uh, those of you that have seen it before are going to probably chuckle when we read what we read. But in Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 6, this is while Moses is up on the mount with God getting the Ten Commandments. Something very interesting happens. And Aaron is right in the middle of it. Now this is the one that's already been anointed and ordained to be the high priest. Or actually, this is right, right before he's officially made that in that capacity because they're about to set up the, the tabernacle and all. But look at what it says here. It says, when, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast it in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. That's important. He shaped it with a tool. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. This is what the people said. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, which brought you out of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Now, before we move on to the next section of the story... They, they said to Aaron, well, we don't know what happened to this fellow Moses. That's kind of interesting. They didn't even say your brother. They said, we don't know what happened to this fellow Moses. We need, we need a God to worship. And Aaron actually takes the gold from their jewelry, heats it up, casts it into a shape of a calf, a golden calf, and forms it with a tool, shapes it with a tool. And then the people say, these are the gods that brought us out of Egypt. Now Aaron says, well, we can mix the two. Let's have a festival to the Lord. And it was a mixture of worship of the true God plus idolatry that was going on. And it was a mixture of sacrifice to God plus also it was a sexual type of a perversion going on at the same time. Which is what they were used to in some of the false worship. So now go over to chapter 32. Look at verses 19 through 24. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf they had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. 
He said to Aaron, it's like a parent catching you smoking or something. It's almost like that, you know? Okay, finish the pack, you know? All right. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that led that you led them into such great sin? Don't be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold, jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Isn't that amazing? I didn't even... I'm not responsible. This woman you gave me. Isn't that what Adam said? Not my fault. Eve says, no, no, not my fault. It's just the snake. We we sure don't like to admit our weakness, do we? He made a big boo-boo. But instead of saying, man, did I do a wrong thing? And I'm sorry. And I need forgiveness. And I we need to figure out how we're going to rectify this situation. He acts like it wasn't his fault. But guess what? God still used Aaron, this high priest. See, we have this mindset that there's an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. We always use the, the, the big voice with the Old Testament God and the nice voice with the New Testament God, don't we? Same God. And He was merciful. Aaron did a big no-no, folks. He made the idol. And then he wouldn't even admit it. It was his fault. And God still used him. Maybe God's a little more gentle than we think. So, what about Moses, though? Do you know Moses interceded on behalf of the nation of Israel a few times? And he actually spared them by interceding on their behalf as God was going to wipe them out. Was Moses weak? Yeah. Go back to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. This is right after uh, Moses meets God at the burning bush. I mean, he's having a conversation with God, watching this bush burn, and it doesn't burn up. And now he's, you know, God said, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh and tell him let my people go. And chapter 4, Moses answered, What if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord didn't appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What's that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake. And he ran from it. Good for you. Smart man. The Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Boy, that, that, I'm telling you. that's <laughs> Praise God for faith, man. Take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took a hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put it inside his cloak. And when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Now put it back in your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak. And when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they don't believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they don't believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, O Lord, please send someone else to do it. 
The Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, What about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he was your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform miraculous signs with it. Was Moses weak too? Yes, he was. He was scared. He was fearful. So, the Hebrew writer says that the high priests were able to deal gently with those who were... Well, how's it worded here? Take a look in chapter 5 again, verses 2 and 3. With those who are ignorant and are going astray. They will deal gently with them. Why? Because he too is weak. Now again, the only reason the Hebrew writer would even be bringing this aspect of the high priest position out was to show its correlation with Jesus. But we've already looked at chapter 4 and how he's not without I mean that, that he's not a sinner himself. He's without sin, tempted in every way in which we are. We did that study last week. But go back again to chapter 4 and look at verse 15. The scripture says this very clearly. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Why can we go to God with confidence? Because we know that He will deal how with us? Gently. Folks, I can be honest with you. Because of my misunderstanding of who God really was and still thinking that at some point I had to keep asking God to forgive me of my sins, not understanding that I have already been forgiven of all my sins. The Bible says that I'm to confess my sin, but the Bible really doesn't teach that I'm to keep asking Him to forgive me. I actually grew up in a church that every Sunday we ask God to forgive us of our sins. But the Bible says He already has. Why are you asking Him to do something that He's already done? Now the Bible does not say that, that we don't we ignore sin. God still sees sin as sin. He deals with it. The Bible says we're to confess our sin. Acknowledge our sin. And He's able, He cleanses us from all our unrighteousness. We're already cleansed from our unrighteousness. But the confession of our sin is good and it helps us understand, look, that's not what God has for me. I don't want to stay in that kind of a path. I don't want to live like that. God, I'm sorry. Acknowledge what I've done, but I have learned now instead of saying, please forgive me, I say, thank you that you already have. Now this is important, because as a young child and as a teenager and as a young man, as I grew up in my walk with the Lord, I've known Him since 1973 when I was 8 years old. I unfortunately had this mindset that Jesus' death on the cross had accomplished this bank account of forgiveness for me. But I had to tap into it now to have asked God to give me some more. And many of the time after sinning, I would say, oh God, please forgive me. And then I'd sin the same sin. And I'd say, oh God, please forgive me. And then I'd sin the same sin. And after a while, there's a side of us as humans that say, there ain't no way you can keep forgiving me. You ever been that way? You ever felt that way? But the Bible says you're already forgiven. God was in Christ reconciling everything to Himself. So understanding this, makes it easy for me to approach the throne of grace in my time of need, in my sin. I say, thank goodness I'm already forgiven. As I go to Him and confess, 
He's going to deal gently with me. He's going to deal gently with me. So the Scripture says that He is. Can He really sympathize with our weakness even though He's sinless? Does He really understand? Can He really deal gently? I can't say this enough. Yes, 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 yes. If Scripture says it, every word is true. And in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, you can write it down. I'm just going to quote it to you. Jesus says what? He says, Come to Me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will what? Give you rest. And I don't know if many of you can quote the rest of it, but this is what He says. Come to Me, for I am meek and humble of heart. And it then goes on and says that He is gentle. And you'll find rest for your souls. Here Jesus stood there and said, I'm gentle. I'm gentle. So, I told you I was going to throw you a couple curveballs though. Okay? Is Jesus really gentle? What about those times that He appears harsh? I mean, can we not remember Him going into the temple? Turning over the money changers and one of the times... By the way, I don't know if you know this, He did it twice. The Gospels show us that He did it at the beginning of His ministry, and He did it at the end of His ministry. There's, it's recorded in John at the very beginning. It's recorded in the other Gospels at the end. And if you look closely, even though they're similar, there's two different accounts. The things that are said are not the same. And also in one instance, He actually makes a whip. One time He doesn't have a whip. The second time He does. So here's Jesus, this gentle Jesus, going into the temple courts and not just turning over tables. He's whipping so, go to Matthew 25 and, and, and let me read to you the words of Jesus. I, I'm going I'm to give you something that's a little bit hard to, to grasp. In the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, go to verse 24. He's already said, well done to the two people that had done well with what he had given them. In verse 24 now, he deals with the one who received the one talent... So the man who received the one talent came. Master, he said, I I know you're a hard man, harvesting where you haven't sown and gathering where you have not scattered seeds. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that doesn't sound gentle. Go to Luke chapter 12. Look at verses 4 and 5. Jesus again, red letters. I tell you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That doesn't sound gentle. Go to James chapter 4. Verses 4 through 10. James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. It says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? 
Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely? But He gives more grace. That's why the Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God and resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he'll lift you up. That doesn't sound gentle. And folks, it's important that we not skim over this. It's really easy for us to sit here and say he's gentle because it says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, oh he's gentle, and it says you know here in Hebrews chapter five that he's gentle, and, and that makes us feel good, and, and we can say, oh that's wonderful, and that's true. But we have to deal with some things because you know what? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that across this country are different types of churches, and there are some churches that focus on God's harshness, right? I mean, that's what they're known for is, you know, that's just one of those churches that you're going to get beat up every Sunday because they're going to tell you to shape up and fly right. And they use Scripture to prove their point. Yet there are other places that talk about the love of God and the meekness of God and the gentleness of God and it's His kindness that leads us to repentance, it says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. So which is it? It's both... But it is determined by how you approach Him. And I want to show you that. It's very important. The Scripture, and we just got a glimpse of it here in James chapter 4. I want you to go back to James chapter 4. Verses 4 through 10. This is determined... The unpardonable sin, and you're getting, to, you're getting to somewhere we're going to go to. If you want to hang on to that, we'll get there. Um, and so if we don't... If, if I, in my... Going where I'm going, don't come back to it. Raise your hand, I'll remember to come back to it. But the unpardonable sin is part of where we're going. But the the issue is this. Are you going to come to Him humbly? Acknowledging His his godness, if you will? Or are you going to come proud as if you don't need Him? See, that's the difference between how God deals with us gently or with those who doesn't deal gently with or how that they approach Him. In this passage here in James chapter 4, He's talking to Christians. He says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that He's Spirit, He caused to live in us, envies intensely, but He gives us more grace. That's why the Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to who? The humble. The, he's gentle with who? The humble. He's gentle with the ones who say, I'm weak and I need you. I have sinned. And thank God for your mercy. Thank God for your patience. Thank God for your gentleness. The ones who say, I'm alright. Ah, what I did wasn't that bad. I just threw it in the gold and it came out a calf. I, I, this woman, you, it's not my fault. God will have to deal a little bit more firmly with those children of His who persist in thinking they don't need help or they're really not that bad. When your children were little, hopefully when they were going astray, you gently tried to line them back up with the right path, correct? You didn't go first time, hey! You didn't do that first, did you? Hopefully. I mean, that's a horrible parent to have if that's the first thing you did. But you actually started... By the way, that must have been really good on the microphone. But... But... You hopefully gently said, no, honey, that's not what we have for you. 
But if your child persisted in saying, I don't care what you think, you had to amp up the discipline, did you not? Your Heavenly Father will have to do the same thing with you. That's why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, some who are taking the Lord's Supper incorrectly are sick, and some are asleep. He's taking them home early. Was He punishing them for their sins? No. Then Jesus wasn't fully punished. Was He dealing with their issues or dealing with their their disobedience in a forceful way? Yes. Why? Because He who began the good work in you will finish it. He's never going to give up on those that are His. And even if He chooses and He feels that the only way He can finish what He starts with you is to take you home and finish it there, He'll do it. But the first thing you need to understand is He is gentle if you understand your need of Him and you come to Him humbly and you're willing to say, I need you. I did it again. I am a sinner that you have forgiven. Thank God I'm not a sinner in your eyes anymore, but I still got this stinking flesh like we dealt with last week. Thank God you're merciful to me. And for those who come to Him like that, you can go to Him boldly because He is gentle toward those who understand. And that's why He gives us more grace. He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Make sure you what I'm talking about, and then we're going to get to where you're going, Scott. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You'll see actually Paul talk like Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he's dealing with a Corinthian church that he's had to defend the fact that he was even an apostle. There were some people that were questioning whether or not he had the authority to tell them what to do and all that stuff. And I love how Paul writes what he writes here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at what he says. He says, By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away. In other words, he's quoting them. He's heard that they're saying, you know, when Paul's here, he's not that strong or that bold. But he sure writes bold letters. He's pretty, pretty big stuff when he's not here. But when he's here, he's not, he's not that bold. So he says, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. In other words, do you see that little bit of a threat there? I may have to get a little tougher with you all when I show up. But how did he start it? What did he offer first? Gentleness and meekness. The gentleness and the meekness of Christ. I'm going to give you the first shot at humbling yourselves. And I want to come to you that way. If I have to get tough, I'll do it. Again, when God gets tough, is He mad? No. Is He going to punish you? No. But He's going to win. Let me just tell you, He's going to win. One thing I've taught parents as a pastor over the years is when, when the kids are little, win the battle of who's in charge then. When their flesh starts to rear its ugly head and they say no and they're in the terrible twos and all that kind of stuff, I tell parents, win it now. Win the battle now. You won't have to fight it as bad later on. But if you don't win the battle now, if you let them think that they even have some control in this situation, you've got your handful with years to come. Why? As parents, we understood we're going to win. We're going to win when they were little. And your Heavenly Father who has bought you, saved you, made you His child, 
He's now made you His project. And the Bible says clearly He'll finish what He started. And listen to me. He's going to win. But wouldn't it be easier for you and more pleasant for Him if you would just humble yourself and let Him win? He gives grace to the humble. He's gentle to the humble. He opposes the proud. And He wins. There's an interesting phrase in the King James translation. You don't see it in many of the other translations. It's because of the, the manuscripts they, they, uh, um, they quote from or they translate from. But when Paul meets Jesus face to face on the road to Damascus, and God wins, and blinds him and knocks him off his horse, and Paul says, Who are you, Lord? And God says this. He says, Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. In the King James translation, it says this. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Some translations kick against the pricks. In other words, they used to have on the boots of guys that were riding horses or donkeys or whatever, little like spurs things. And when the rider was wanting the horse to go one way and the horse wanted to go another way, the rider had those little instruments on their heels that would goad the horse to let them know, I'm going to win. It's, you may fight me, but it's not going to be fun for you. I'm going to win. And God said to Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, buddy. And then Paul said, I came to realize I was his chosen instrument from birth. And he humbled himself. And he said, whatever you have in mind, I'll do. And from then on, God dealt with him gently. Isn't that cool? He's gentle. He's able. He understands your weakness. Don't think he doesn't. He's not a harsh God. He's not a mean God. But the reason some people see him as such is because in some instances, he's had to amp up his levels of discipline because he's going to win. Let me show you another example. Go to Galatians chapter 5. And I'm still coming to you, Scott. Galatians chapter 5. Look at verses 22 through 6-2. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. We know this passage. But the fruit of the Spirit, or the evidence of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. What? Gentleness. It's the first thing you're going to see from God. He's gentle. And self-control. Against such things there's no, no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with His passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Keep reading. Into chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore them. How? The first thing you need to do is be gentle to them. Why? Because that's how God is. Now the Bible does teach that if you go to your brother who's in a sin and you go to them gently for the purpose of restoration and they don't listen, what are you to do? You're to bring over another brother or sister and you're to again gently try to persuade them to line themselves back up with the will of God. If they continue to walk in disobedience, then you bring them before the church and treat them as an unbeliever. But you don't go to the harshness first. That's not who God is. In time, you may have to amp up the discipline. But until then, let the gentleness be the first thing because that's who God is. That's why Paul said, in the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I'm going to approach you this way first. Yeah, you guys don't think I'm able to be bold. You may be surprised when I show up. That's a picture of who God is and how He deals with us. 
write this down, you don't have to turn there. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It talks about the prophecy of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. And it says, Behold, your king comes. By the way, anybody know what the next word is? Gentle. And riding on a donkey. Is he gentle? Yes. Are there places that sure he looks harsh? Yes. But it's because he's had to amp up the discipline to line up his children back in line with what he wants. He's going to win. But don't, don't make him go to that. But now we also have to deal with back in Matthew 25, and this goes to what Scott was talking about. There are going to be times that you actually see God say, cast him into outer darkness, or there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the, the door is shut. The reason why God is dealing with the third servant in this capacity is that, first of all, the third servant never knew the heart of the Master. All right, The third servant in this parable never knew the heart of the Master. He said, I knew you are a hard man. That's not who God is. But the reason He dealt with them harshly was, this is the time of the judgment in Matthew 25. And there comes a point where God says, you've had all your opportunity to receive My mercy. You've had all your opportunity to receive My gentleness. The door has now been shut. You're on the outside. And all you'll see from then on is the wrath and the harshness of God. Because you're not covered. And that's why, as Scott brought out, there is only one sin that's unpardonable. God will forgive murder. He will forgive incest. He'll forgive... I mean, we can list all the stuff. People of the Bible who we would agree are in heaven did. There's only one sin He won't forgive. And that's when He calls to you by His Spirit to humble yourself and receive Him as your Savior. That is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. When you say no to the Spirit of God, ultimately there comes a point where God stops offering the free gift and your time is up. So what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It is ultimately saying no to when the Spirit calls you. The good news is, He calls you more than once. But how many times will He call you? I don't know, and that's not for us to worry about. That's God's thing. But there is a sin that He will not forgive. And that's when you say no to His call through the Spirit to Jesus Christ. Remember, the Bible says that the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. There are going to be people on the other side who are going to say, I'm sorry! That's the only sin He won't forgive. I called you by My Spirit and you said no. I called you by My Spirit and you said no. The good news is, for us who are in Jesus Christ, there's no condemnation and we can't commit the unpardonable sin. But He deals with us gently. He's gentle. He understands your weakness. Humble yourself and say, yes, I did it. Isn't that hard for us sometimes? To just admit we did it? We're still even... I'm 45. I still don't want to admit I do wrong. And as soon as I do, I'll let you know. Nobody laughed at that one at all. You, you did... You, it, it reminds me of this... It reminds me of the joke I heard. is this, this, this one girl that wanted to win the beauty pageant. And it bothered her that she didn't win. And finally, after being upset about it for years and years and years, she said, you know what? I, I wanted to win the beauty pageant, but I didn't win. But I'm over it now. I'm okay with it now, but I still should have won. <laughs> I want to wrap up tonight. And I want to read to you, and I want you to follow along, Isaiah chapter 40. Verses 1 through 31. And Isaiah 40, in an Old Testament passage, sums up... Everything we've just been talking about, about the meekness and the gentleness of God and also the harshness of God. I love how Isaiah says this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. 
Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall be made become level, and the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift up, do not, lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breath of his hand uh, marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him the knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and his people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. All throughout this whole chapter, you'll see him say he's gentle. He deals tenderly. He holds them like, 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 a, like a lamb in his arms. Oh, the nations are like nothing, though. We're America. Yeah, good luck with that. They're like nothing to him. He can just blow on them and they're gone. Yet, to those who say, I need you. He's tender. 
compassionate, patient, long-suffering, full of love. And that's how He wants to deal with you and that's how He offers the first. And He says, receive my meekness, receive my gentleness and stay there. Don't become proud. Don't think you don't need me every day. Don't think you don't need my grace every day. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, after Paul had been taken into the third heaven and seen paradise, seen things that he wasn't allowed to even speak about, God gave him a thorn in his flesh to keep him from being conceited. And he said to Paul, this is a gift actually, buddy, because I've let you see things that no other human has seen. To keep you from becoming conceited, I'm going to give you a little struggle in your flesh that you're going to have to deal with until you come see me face to face. And my grace is sufficient for you. And then Paul says, Therefore I will boast about my weaknesses. Because it keeps me where I need to be. Folks, other churches out there focusing on the harshness of God more than they should? Yes. Other churches that focus only on the love of God and they neglect that God will get firm? Yes. All throughout the Scripture, if you end up back in the middle, into the balance, you'll be a lot more lined up with the truth of God's Word. But the first way He deals with us is what? Gently. And if you stay humble and acknowledge your need, you need not see anymore. And if you're His child, even if you have Him have to amp up His discipline, He's not mad. He's just going to win. Let me pray for us. Father... You are good. And we see a little bit tonight as we've been looking at the Scriptures of how it could be easy for us to have a misconception of who You are. I mean, we we see Sodom and Gomorrah. Yet, as we see You converse with Abraham, we see that this is a a nation and a, a city that You've been actually reaching out to for quite a while. And the time for judgment came. With each of us, you deal with us in gentleness and mercy and patience. But ultimately, there comes a point where you say, I've got to change my tactics to get accomplish what I want to accomplish. Father, I, I pray for anyone that's listening here, not just in this room tonight, but in listening to, the, to this message on the, on the website. May we humble ourselves immediately right now. If some are listening on the road... And they just pull over to the side of the road if need be and just run into your arms of mercy. Yes, the Scripture says that you came gently. You were meek and mild. You came to seek and save the lost and to die for sinners. When you come again, you're coming with judgment. You won't be as gentle at that time. So sometimes we we have a misunderstanding of who you are or how you're working and we first understand that you love us. May you offer us compassion. May we receive that. May no one listening at all ever have to see the harsh side of who you are. But thank you for the promise that if we become your children through Jesus Christ, even if you have to get firm, it's for our best. Because we've moved from death to life. we moved from being in Adam to being in Christ, and in Christ there's no condemnation. Thank you for that. And Father, the reason we're still here right now is because you're still giving opportunity in your, in your mercy and your compassion 
to those who have never said yes to Jesus Christ. And again, we pray, may they turn to You. May they receive this free gift of salvation before it's too late. And Father, may we receive Your patience, Your gentleness with us in such a way that it spills onto the people around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.